Amen, amen, amen. Well, welcome on in. Welcome on in. Glad to have you guys here. For those who do not know, my name is Kaipo. I am one of the pastors here at Athey Creek, and I have the privilege of getting to walk through the word with you men today. I uh, enjoy getting to be a part of what's going on here at Athey Creek. It's a huge blessing. You get to grow and learn a lot from what the Lord's doing. A few of the things that I get to do is, again, pastoral care stuff, but also get to dibble and dabble in uh, some men's ministry stuff and church service stuff. Um, speaking of which, who, uh, who joined us for our men's meetings, which we had this past summer? Give me a raise of hands. Oh, sweet. Okay, so you, some of you guys are going to have a, a little leg up on those who weren't here this, uh, or didn't attend this past summer. My, my hope today is to continue on this discussion of Nehemiah, as this firm, firm leader, this man who followed after the Lord, who had this conviction, who was really used mightily for the Lord's purposes. Men, today, like Nehemiah, today, there are not many men like Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a rare, rare man. When you look at someone who not only heard the call of the Lord, understood his principles, understood the convictions that he had, but he acted on it. He was passionate. He, he, he exemplified, I think, a leader that you and I can really look to. And I've been really blessed by this study through this because it's convicting. It's convicting to see how he had so much fervor towards the Lord, to the things of the Lord. And so my, my hope is, is to continue that discussion today, to continue through that and see how the Lord would speak to us as men. <clears throat> so with that said, I want to do a quick little recap of Nehemiah's one, two, and three. Um, Nehemiah, chapters one and two, we saw a few things. One of the first things that we saw there in Nehemiah one, two, is that Nehemiah cared. Men, can you hear me on this first thing? And those who were there this past summer, maybe you, you caught that as well. The first thing that you and I as men have to do, we have to actually care. You and I have to actually care about whatever it is that the Lord's calling us to do. We need to make sure that we, as we care, that is where everything starts. The ways that we pray, our ministry, what the Lord has done for us and through us. If you and I don't really care about those things, you will not see the, work, the Lord continue that work. And so as men, find it within yourself, the ability to do what Nehemiah did. As he heard the word from those, uh, as he, they brought word back from Jerusalem saying the, the walls are in shambles. Things are just, the, the walls are not built. Everything's sort of left in ruin. Nehemiah, he didn't have to care. He was in a comfortable spot. He was where he wanted to be, the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, yet he cared. And honestly, man, that was convicting for me because I do a lot of things. I can routely go through the motions and do this and do that, but not care a lick. One way, I'm just sort of this man doing these things. And it was convicting for me. First, we see that Nehemiah, he actually, he cared. When you care, that's what leads us to pray. We saw the next thing that Nehemiah did is he, he prayed. He cared enough to pray. Throughout the book of Nehemiah, we see that he prays nine, eight, nine, ten times, something like that. He was one who prayed. And it caused him uh, to have this heart and this fervor, this desire for the things of the Lord. Man, as you care about things, that should lead you to continue to pray. What do we see after that? We saw not only did he pray, but he waited. Nehemiah didn't get ahead of the Lord, and he didn't lag behind the Lord. He was right where the Lord wanted him to be. And it wasn't just an apathetic waiting where he just sort of st stood around waiting. All right, Lord, whenever you're going to do this, uh, he, he was actively waiting, waiting on the Lord, preparing for what would be next. Because after he waited, what did he do? 
He asked. Now, honestly, men, I'm, I'm not a great asker. Maybe some of you can relate to that in some degree. I, I'm not great at asking for help. I'm not great at asking for certain things. I love that Nehemiah, he shows us that it's, it's not only okay to ask, it's good to ask. And he was prepared. When that moment came where he got to come before King Artaxerxes and bring his request, he asked Artaxerxes that he could go. He asked for papers, documentation, saying that this was something he could do. He also asked for supplies. He asked for a caravan to make it over uh, to Jerusalem there. Nehemiah was good at asking. And you and I, we also are to ask. You know, we're told there to come boldly to the throne room of grace. Hebrews reminds us. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may, may obtain mercy and find grace in the time, um, in time of need. What do we see so far? He cared. He prayed. He waited. He asked. As we shift into uh, uh, you know, chapter two, we saw that he rested. You and I, men, as hard as we wanna work, as fervent as we wanna be about what the Lord has for us, we also need to be good at resting. This is something that the Lord has sort of commanded us to do. And in our day and age, in our digital uh, life, where we can work you know, wherever we're at, I can work going to the bathroom, on the toilets, writing emails, I can work as I'm driving, I can call. we can work wherever we're at now that the Lord reminds us, hey, you need to rest. And Nehemiah exemplified that. He was a great example for that. After all these things, after he cared, he prayed, he waited, he asked, he rested, he actually went. I think some of us men can do all this work, all the legwork, all this, the, the prayer and all these things, but when it comes to actually going and doing what the Lord has called us to do, it's difficult, it's hard, it's uncomfortable. We can do all this legwork, getting ready to do what the Lord has called us to do, yet not actually take the steps and move forward. Nehemiah was not such a guy. He knew the Lord's calling on his life, and he went. He went. He did what the Lord had asked him to do. And finally, we saw there, chapters one and two, that he worked. He was a hard worker. He was diligent, as we're going to see today. He was one who put his mind to the work, and he served the Lord faithfully. So chapters one and two, we sort of set the stage of this guy, Nehemiah, and how he was fervent. He had this conviction. He was diligent. Chapters three, when we shift over to chapter three, we see now that the work is beginning and the different type of workers, the different type of workers that Nehemiah sort of instilled for the work there. You have the leaders. You have the leaders there. Nehemiah himself, you have the high priests. Who else do we have working on this wall? We also have the spectators. We saw the noblemen of Tekoa, how they saw the work, but they weren't gonna put their shoulder to the work. They weren't gonna actually engage in the work. They were just gonna watch and be a spectator. And we begin to see this correlation for our own lives and how, man, there's these similar types of workers, similar type of men here today. You've got the leaders, but you've got the spectators who are on the side sort of, oh yeah, we'll pray for you. Good work, yeah, keep doing that work there. Who else do we have? We also have the overachievers. You have those who, when we look at Nehemiah 3, you saw those who built that part of the wall and then Nehemiah gave them another portion to continue to build. And they built another portion. You have the overachievers. A lot of times when, when we see the work that needs to be done, it's a seldom few that are carrying the load of the greater. And we see that. We see that true uh, all across the board, whatever it might be. The last, lastly, we saw the family man. We saw how Nehemiah 
had this ability to, to have those men working next to their houses, working with their families. Not only these types of workers we saw in chapter three, but we also saw the gospel in the gates. The gospel in the gates. We have this up here, and I'm, I'm just gonna sort of walk through this because we, we went through that last time, but the correlations, the pictures we see is so profound, and it's so awesome, it's so neat. There in the sheep gate, you have this picture of Jesus. What did Jesus say about himself? What did John say about Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In the fish gate, we see the importance for you and I where Jesus called his disciples to be fishers of men. The old gate, a desire for us to be about solid doctrine, be about the word, be about what God has asked us to do. Don't waver from those things. Don't be tossed to and fro from every wind of doctrine that comes in. The valley gate, a picture, a symbol of humility. Men, the quickest way for you and myself to thwart anything that the Lord wants to do in us, be prideful, take the glory, take the honor, be, be more concerned about yourself and less about what the Lord would do through you. See how quickly the Lord will not use you if you're not humble. The dung gate, cleansing those things out, those things that may be inside of us, to, to cleanse those things out, remove those things. The fountain gate, was a reminder of the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit, to ask, and he'll fill us afresh. We see the water gate, a reminder of the Word, how important it is for us to be constantly in the Word, washing ourselves, cleansing ourselves. The last three gates, we see a picture of, uh, of the end times. We see the rapture there with the horse gate. We see uh, the second coming of Christ in the east gate. And then at the Mifkad gate, we see judgment. And so it was so cool to walk through those things and see the gospel in the gates, see how Jesus is interwoven and intertwined through this picture of these gates. Now, I guarantee you, Nehemiah wasn't assessing these things back then, looking to see, oh man, all these awesome pictures that we have. But what I'm reminded of is, you know, Colossians 3, 4, what does it tell us? It says, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Men, do not, do not uh, misunderstand that the Lord is a part of every aspect of your life. He's not, he's not just a part of you because you're here this morning at an Ironworks. He's not a part of your life simply because you've come to church or you go to those Bible studies. Every part of our aspect, every part of our life, the Lord is intertwined. Let me read that again. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And so my hope this morning, my hope for us is that as we walk through these things, as we look at the life of Nehemiah, as we continue on and gaze in at the work that he's doing on the wall, that the Lord would encourage us, remind us, sharpen us, strengthen us in these things. If you have your Bibles, go ahead, flip on over to Nehemiah 4, if you're not there already. If you've got your phone, iPad, laptop, whatever it is, probably don't use your laptop. Uh, flip on over to Nehemiah 4, and I want you guys to, uh, man, to put away all the distractions, all the things that may cloud our minds, the things that we're thinking about, the lawn work that we have to go do after this, or that meeting, or the food, you know, put all those things aside, and as we sort of read through this, would you really uh, focus in and allow the Lord to speak to you, okay? Follow along with me, Nehemiah chapter 4, we're going to read through this. Starting there in verse 1. But it so happened when Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall that he was furious and very indignant. 
and mocked the Jews. And he spoke before his brethren and the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, whatever they build, even if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn their reproach on their own head and give them as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their iniquity and do not let their sin be blotted out from before you. For they have provoked you to anger before the builders. Verse six. So we built the wall and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. Now it happened when Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. Nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. And because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. Then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing. And there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And our adversaries said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us 10 times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, and I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, their bows. And I looked and I arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction, while the other half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other hand held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built. And the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. Then I said to the nobles, the rulers, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored in the work, and half of the men held spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. When I read through this and I see Nehemiah, I see a firm, confident leader, one who not only understood the, the tactics of the enemy, but he, in the face of that, knew what it was that he was supposed to do. Nehemiah is such an amazing book to give us this insight 
to what it means to spark revival, what it means to be a leader. The first thing I wanna talk to, to us about is something that I think we need to be aware of, and that is the enemy tactics. The enemy tactics and how you and I are going to be brought down, how you and I will be thwarted and the temptations that may come our way. Man, if, if you aren't in tune or if you don't understand the ways that you can fail, the ways that you can fall, you've got something coming towards you. You are not prepared, you are not ready, you are not able to come against those attacks that come your way. And here we saw how the enemy tactics and what the enemy did towards Nehemiah. 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Corinthians 2.11, it reminds us of this one thing we're not to be ignorant of. It says, um, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Ignorant of Satan's devices. There's six things throughout scripture that we're not to be ignorant of. You know, we're not to be ignorant of God's plan for Israel, for the working of the Holy Spirit, for the Old Testament typology, how Jesus is sort of interwoven throughout the word, the rapture of the church, God's timing. But one of these things that we're not to be ignorant of is Satan's devices, the tactics of the enemy. When we look at what happened with Nehemiah, we see that Sambalat, Tobiah, and these enemies, how they approached, how they came after um, how they came after Nehemiah and the people there. The first thing that we saw is that they scorned. If you back up just a little bit, Nehemiah 4, if you go to chapter 2, uh, verse 19 and 20, this is sort of that first, first way that they attacked them. It says, but when Sambalat, verse 19 of chapter 2, when Sambalat the Ornorite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? Will you rebel against the king? Scorn is that first thing, that first tactic that the enemy will use. Disrespect, purposeful disrespect, mocking, jesting, uh, this idea of discouragement. The enemy will very quickly do that for us. Disrespect, shame, discourage. One of the things about discouragement that's really dastardly, if I could put it that way, is all he has to do is get you and myself a little discouraged. He's done, he's done his work. Because he no longer has to do anything. What is discouragement? It's us defeating ourselves. When you're discouraged, when you aren't in tune with what the Lord has called you to do, and you're remaining in that attitude of discouragement, not encouraging yourself in the Lord, but staying discouraged, you've defeated yourself. Our enemy no longer has to do anything other than whisper those things of discouragement, scorn. What did Nehemiah do? Well, we'll look at what Nehemiah did and how he combated that. But the first thing is, is, is scorn. The second thing we, think we see is sarcasm. Back to Nehemiah 4, if you look at verses 1 through 3, we see that Sambalat started to ask those questions, those sarcastic questions. Verse 2, it says, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of the rubbish, the stones that are burnt? Sambalat, he's speaking all these things. Here's the, here's the danger with it. Some of that's true. Some of that, that works, some of the questions, some of the things that he's saying is actually true. Would it take more than a day? It would. It would take a long time. Were these Jews feeble? We will see that later on in this chapter that they were very feeble. The, the trouble with sarcasm, with, with the idea of mocking, is that there's truth interwoven in what they say. 
There's truth interwoven within that. How do we deal with that? How do we handle that when those things come against us? Not only scorn, not only sarcasm, but also we see schemes. We see the schemes of the enemy. Verse seven. Verse seven there in chapter four. It says, now Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were being restored and the gaps were beginning to be closed, that they became very angry. And all of them conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. What are the schemes of the enemy? The three C's we see right here. They conspire to create confusion. Conspiring to create confusion. When, when you and I, you know, this third tactic we see from the enemy is that that's all they have to do. Get us confused, not, not moving in the right direction or not really sure on what the Lord has for us or the direction that we're to go. All he has to do is just keep us a little confused and we do the rest. We sort of walk in aloof to what it is the Lord's called us to do. We, we, re, we remain confused. Not only scorn, not only sarcasm, not only these schemes, those uh, when the enemy conspires to create confusion. But lastly, we see here from Sambalat is the, the surprise, the surprise attack. There in verse 11, it says, and our adversaries said, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. The surprise attack. If we're caught off guard, we will fail, we will fall. And I know you guys have seen this. You guys have lived through this. When, when that attack, when that temptation comes my way and I'm not ready, I'm very prone to give into that, to step into that, to not be ready, to not be willing to guard myself against those things. So we see these four things, the enemy of the tactic. How is Satan going to get at us as Sanballat is striving to, to undo the work of Nehemiah? We see that he'll scorn us. Not only that, we see that he'll use sarcasm. He'll scheme against us. He'll surprise attack us. This is why I love the book of Nehemiah, because it doesn't end there. We get to take a look and see how did Nehemiah respond to those things? What was the recourse that he gave in every instance when that temptation came? And that's our next point here is Nehemiah's <clears throat> recourse. Nehemiah's recourse in what he did to combat the tactic of the enemy. The first one we saw there, again, was scorn. And we saw that as, as he was scorned, what did he do? The first thing he did was that he reiterated that the Lord was at work, right? Philippians 1.6, we know this, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it till the day of Jesus Christ. How did he deal with scorn? Man, he realized the Lord was the one at work. It wasn't him. His confidence was not in him and his ability. The Lord was the one at work. He also reminded themselves that God had a purpose, that God will be the one to prosper them. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Not only reminding them that God was at work, not only that he will prosper them, but also that the enemy had no rightful claim. The enemy had no rightful claim to uh, what they were saying. Sambalat, Tobiah, those men, they didn't have a right to, to, re, to be there. Nehemiah did. He had the paperwork from King Artaxerxes. He was given the paperwork. He was supposed to be there. How did he combat scorn? He just reminded the enemy, this is my territory. This is where I'm supposed to be. You have no claim in that. Sarcasm, the next thing we see. How did he deal with that? The first thing was, as we see here in Nehemiah 4, um, uh, read with me in chapter four, 
verse four, it says, he, all these questions come toward him, the, scar, the sarcasm's coming, and what does he do? He instantly prays. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. And Nehemiah goes on and, and prays. He doesn't even give the light of day to those questions that are coming his direction. When, when those accusations, those things are being fired at him, he doesn't respond. He doesn't even uh, acquiesce and, and start this banter, this debate with those people who are speaking against him. What does he do? He prays. He goes straight to the Lord. We know this scripture, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, where it t- reminds us to pray without ceasing. Praying in that moment, instantly turning to the Lord. When those brothers, when those attacks are coming your way, that's hard. What I just said is biblical, it's true, that's hard. When, when, I'm, when I'm being attacked and I'm being questioned, the first thing I'm doing in my mind is I'm getting my attack ready. In my mind, I'm ready to say this thing, to say that thing, the way that I can sort of uh, manipulate the situation with my words to defend myself. Nehemiah reminded us that when sarcasm, when that attack, when that comes, be quick to pray. You and I have to be good at that. How to deal with scorn, how to deal with sarcasm. Don't answer those questions, but pray to the Lord. The other thing there too is, you know, Matthew uh, 5.25 reminds us Agree with your adversary quickly. You know, um, you know, when we think about agreeing with your adversary quickly, it's, boy, that's not easy. You know, because the temptation for us as we walk through these things is to defend, is to validate, is to sort of, you know, we, we, don't, we don't like that feeling when someone's coming against us. And so we're gonna, we're gonna push against them. But there's a real key when you and I can, can capture that. When an enemy is speaking those things against us, to agree with them quickly, you're right, yes. When they're speaking that we're not worthy of these things or you shouldn't be, you're right, yes. I have in my mind a vivid uh, reminder or a story of this because um, I won't say that I'm naturally uh, able to do that, but there's been several instances in my life where as I've strived to do that, I have seen how the Lord works, not only in those that I'm communicating with, but also in my own heart. Um, I, I'm reminded we, my lovely family and I, I've got four kiddos. Um, we're down in Woodburn now. We've been there for about a year and a half or so. And they've got a bunch of new builds uh, going down over there. And so one of the things that I like to do with the kids is we, uh, you know, we'll ride our bikes uh, around and we'll look at all the houses. We'll look at all the construction. And my, my son, Jack, loves getting to find all the pop cans. So he's finding all the pop cans and stuff at these different construction sites. And so it's great, you know, get the kids out of the house, kind of ride around. But one of the things we also love to do is, as these open houses are being built, we'll kind of like explore a little bit and like, oh, look at this and look at that. And everything's all open. <clears throat> Probably not supposed to do that, but we enjoy doing it and uh, looking around, looking at all these things. Well, I will vividly remember this scenario, this time where I had the kids, we're about five, six, seven blocks away from our, our place and we're riding around and we park our bikes in, uh, in the driveway, which doesn't even have concrete yet. And so we're kind of looking at this out. There's no garage. It's just sort of open and everything's just Tyvek and the windows kind of have the, you know, the, the, the slits through them. So the kids and I are just kind of exploring, just looking through, seeing, oh yeah, how this, how this house is built and all these other things. And my, uh, my youngest son at the time, um, Kieran, he, he's you know, almost three now. He had his little cute little helmet on. He has some of the curls sticking out of his helmet. So, I mean, he's a cute little kid, thankfully, because of mama, nothing because of me. <clears throat> um, but... Uh, 
we're, we're exploring this house and we're going through, we're, we're, looking, we're looking at all these awesome things. And as my son is sort of looking out the back window, the back sliding door, you know, again, sort of just this hole of Tyvek, I see him kind of waving and saying like, oh, hi. <clears throat> and as I, I peek my head through the, the other side window, I see this, this, this older gal sort of walking down the sidewalk. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, he's waving to this, this older gal. When I saw her face and the countenance on her, I was a little more, um, how do I put this politely, concerned, as there wasn't like this joyful, oh, you know, cute little two-year-old is waving to me. It was utter scorn, and I could see that this was not going to be a fun conversation. So I quickly sort of told my kiddos, who I think were running around upstairs at this point, you know, in this open house, like, all right, kids, you know, come on down. Let's, uh, let's, let's, let's head out. Let's, you know, get back home. I'm, I'm sure mom's got something for us or, you know, some lunch ready. As, as we sort of make our way down and we get to uh, the driveway there, you know, our kids are putting on their helmets and Jack's got like pop cans, you know, coming in out of his jackets and stuff. And I'm like, where'd you find all those? Um, and so we're getting onto our bikes, but this gal kind of walks over and as she's turning the corner, I'm, I'm like hopeful that it's not going to be a very contentious conversation. And so we kind of just kind of, you know, hey, but the first words out of her mouth are, do you know you're trespassing? Like instantaneously, I'm like, oh boy, okay, this is, and if it were just me, I might've been able to sort of navigate through the situation, but here I have my three kids who are staring at daddy, seeing this old angry woman, you know, railing accusations at me, and they're like, what are you gonna do, daddy? How, how are you gonna respond to this? <clears throat> so in that moment, everything in me was just like, Really? You know, we're just, just, just some kids playing around. We're, you know, not really sure. We're probably trespassing, but we're just, you know, having some fun. We're not really doing anything crazy. But she, she was relentless in that when she said, you know, you're trespassing, my, my knee-jerk reaction was to sort of defend and honestly to, to just sort of speak against her and say, uh, who do you think? We're not doing anything. You know, there's, there's no reason to be upset about this. <clears throat> but I realized the scripture, you know, agree with your adversary quickly and how important it was for me in that moment to, you know what, she's probably right. And that's, that's how I handled that. I basically said, you know what, you're right. But the accusations kept coming, kept coming. She said, you can't be here. I'm like, you're right, we, we shouldn't be here, I'm sorry. And she sees Jack with the pop cans. She's like, you can't have those pop cans. Those are these properties. I'm like, okay, Jack, all right, you know, put them down. It's all right, you know. Just trying to sort of ease the tension here that's going on. And uh, it, it was sort of relentless at some point, you know, trying to really trying to really keep coals, if I would, on her head and saying, and we, we weren't trying to cause any trouble by any means. And, uh, you know, I think what really, not stung, but what really hurt was when she was basically saying, you know, you're a horrible example to these kids. You know, here you are trespassing on these things. And at some point I'm like, okay, there's, there's gotta be something else going on. There's gotta be something else going on. Who knows? There probably would have been other people who have been going through these houses and actually taking things or there's some, something, something that's happened with her at that moment. And I, I remember that, sp- that situation specifically because it wasn't just in how I responded. It wasn't just in trying to sort of ease the tension, but man, we're just sort of walking around the house here. What's, what's going on? But that idea of agreeing with your adversary quickly, when those questions come, when the sarcasm comes against you, that's hard. That's difficult. But in that moment, I also realized there's other people watching me. When, when I'm striving to handle those situations, when I'm striving to, to deal with that situation the right way, it's not just me. It's not just me and how I handle that. It's my children. 
It's those around us. It's our families. When they see how we interact and how we respond to, to tension, to criticism, to those things, their eyes are watching. And you know what? As men, that's sobering. That's really sobering, knowing that I'm sort of on display all the time of how I'm going to act, how I'm going to respond, how when tensions come my way, what's daddy going to do? Do I do that perfectly all the time? No, I do not. I won't tell you about the other instances where I didn't, uh, you know, have such nice, you know, cordial, where it was a little more tense. We won't talk about that because it doesn't fit the sermon and whatnot. So we'll, yeah, we'll save that for later. Um, but really, when you deal with, with sarcasm, one of the things you have to do is pray right away, but agree with your adversary quickly. When, when those railing accusations come, you're right. Yeah, I'm wrong. You're right. I'm, I'm worth, yeah, you're right. To see how the Lord works through that. So not only scorn, not only sarcasm, we also see schemes. We saw that as, as they were scheming, they were striving to um, confuse you know, verse 7 there of, of Nehemiah 4, again, it says that they conspired together to come and attack Jerusalem and create confusion. To create confusion. If you and I stay in this area of confusion, we're going to continue to be aloof, not knowing what the Lord would have for us. But what are, what are we told there? We're told there in 2 Timothy 1, 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. How do we defeat the schemings of the enemy, don't be confused. Hear me on this. How do you defeat the schemes of the enemy? Don't be confused. I think so many of us are confused on our role as a husband, are confused on what we're to do as, as fathers, or, or how we're to live in this world, how we're to endure the things that are going on. And when you and I are confused, the enemy swoops in and gives us the wrong thing to look at, the wrong thing to do. How do we make sure that we aren't confused? Man, make sure that you're in the word. Make sure that you know and understand your calling as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a single man, as a worker. Don't be confused on those things. And if you are, seek the Lord. Look to scripture. Understand your calling as a man. And when you have that conviction and you stay firm and you're not confused, you're going to thwart these schemes. You're going to thwart what the Lord, uh, what Satan may want to do to undo that. The other thing that scheming can do for us is discourage us, discourage us. And we talked a little bit about that already. You know, John 16, 33 says, these things I have spoken to you that in me, you may have peace in the world. You will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Nehemiah's recourse to scorn, to sarcasm, to scheming, these three things. What's the last thing we see here in Nehemiah four? We see that the enemy surprises us. They surprise us. There in Nehemiah chapter, 11, uh, chapter 4, verse 11, it says, And our adversary said, They will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. They'll surprise us. They'll, they'll swoop in and take, us, uh, take advantage of us when we aren't ready. And, man, it's a real quick, simple reminder for, for you and myself. Be ready. Be watchful. Make sure that you are ready for the attack of the enemy. I love what Nehemiah does here. What does he do? Read here with me in verse nine. Um, Nehemiah four, verse nine. Let's look at what Nehemiah did. What did he do? He said, nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God and because of them, we set a watch against them 
day and night. What did Nehemiah do? He prayed and he set a watch. He prayed and he set a watch. Some of us men, I think we're good, maybe at praying. That sort of a problem comes, an issue comes, there's things that happen, and we'll pray, but then we leave it there. Here, Nehemiah reminds us to pray, and then what does he do? He sets a watch. A little later on, we'll see that there in verse 13, that Nehemiah positioned the men in the lower parts of the wall. The most vulnerable spots of this wall as they were rebuilding, Nehemiah set a watch. He prayed and he set a watch. Oh, how important that is for you and myself. Yes, we need to pray. Pray without ceasing. Come to the Lord. Bring our request to the Lord. But men, you and I also need to set a watch. Where is it that the Lord, where is it that the enemy may attack us? Where is it that he's going to surprise us? Where is it that he's going to, to take us down? Set a watch in that area. You know, there's plenty of scriptures that talk about being watchful, and we see those there. You know, um, Mark 13, 33, Matthew 26, 41, 1 Corinthians 16, 13 through 14. Remind us of that admonition to watch, to be watchful. So my encouragement, what is it? Where is the vulnerable spot for you men? What is it that you need to set a watch in? What is it that you know the enemy is going to attack you or maybe has continued to attack you and you've sort of just left that part of the wall open and bare? Men, set a watch. In that area, wherever that might be in your life, set a watch so that the, you can overcome the temptations that may come your way. Setting a watch. So here we saw the schemes, the, the enemy tactics, scorn, sarcasm, scheming, surprise. But then we saw Nehemiah's recourse and how he handled those things. How he, how he looked to the Lord. He prayed quickly. He agreed with his adversary. He understand his purpose, his calling. He wasn't confused, knew who he was as a workman of the Lord. First thing we saw, the enemy's tactics. The next thing we saw, Nehemiah's recourse. <clears throat> the next thing I want to take a look at is there in verse uh, 6. Verse 6, it says, So we built the wall, and the entire wall was joined together up to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. For the people had a mind to work. I, I, when I look at this and when I read through this, I thought, man, that's great. When I think of someone who has a mind to work, I see this congruency. I see how, man, when you have people, when you have a staff or a company or a group of men who have a singular task, man, they can work well. You can get a lot done. But I also saw here, interestingly, that it wasn't just a mind to work towards the good things, towards the right things, as Nehemiah exemplifies here. Right after that, what do we see? We see that Sambalat, Tobiah, we see the Arabs, we see the Ammonites, we see the Ashdodites. What did they all do? Well, they had a mind to work too. What was their mind? They conspired together to create confusion. You saw Nehemiah and the Jews working together, a mind to work for the things of the Lord. But you see the enemy conspiring together to pull down, to break down what it is that the Lord wanted to do. The question I would ask you guys today, this morning, the question I would ask then is, good, great, have a mind to work. Towards what? What is it that your mind, that you are like-minded with other brothers towards? Is it to further the kingdom? Is it to build up the walls that are broken down? Or is it to, is it to tear down? 
is just to go contrary to what the Lord would have for you and myself. Where else in scripture do we see the people sort of having this singular mind and working towards something? Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. When you look at that, we see that, what did God say? Let me read it for you real quick. Genesis 11, we see that the the people here, they had a singular mind and they worked hard. But there in verse six, it says, and the Lord said, Genesis 11, six, indeed the people are one. And they all have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be held from them. And this is where they say, come, let us go down, confuse their language, and sort of disperse them. There, at the story of the Tower of Babel, they were in direct rebellion against what the Lord had told them to do, to be fruitful, to multiply, to spread themselves out. But they didn't do that. Yet they had a mind to work. They were unified. You know, Psalms 133, what does it tell us? Psalm 133 tells us how blessed it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. And when you think of that, okay, so all unity is good then? Is that something that that we should always look towards, is, is to be unified? My question for us this morning is unified toward what? When you have that mind to work, and you're, you're alongside brothers, you're alongside those around you, are you focused on the purpose and the admonition of the Lord toward what he would want for you? Or are you focused more on yourself, on the things that I want, on the things that I want to further, the things that benefit me. Men, you and I need to watch out for this. You and, I, you and I need to be careful that we don't have the mind to work towards the wrong thing, the mind to work towards breaking down what the Lord would have for us, or to be in direct rebellion against God. Be unified. Have that mind to work towards the Lord's purposes, toward what he would want. You know, we see there that this wall, there in verse six, the wall now is about halfway high, right? It says there, we have built the wall, the entire wall joined up together about half its height. So Nehemiah and the gang, they're doing it. They're working, they're, they're completing the work, things are coming along and, and things are happening. <clears throat> but this is where the enemy comes in again. The work is hard. As we, as we read a little bit later after this, they begin to be feeble. They begin to question. And this is where they say, oh, it's too much. Or they, they talk about the rubble that's there. And finishing that work becomes difficult. Finishing the wall becomes difficult. I think a lot of us have this, this idea that we're, we're good at maybe starting things. We're good at beginning these things. But to finish it, oh, that's difficult. I think if I looked at most of our houses, we would see a lot of great starts of home projects, of things we're going to clean, of the garage that we're going to organize, the car that we're going to fix. Oh, we started great. We have lots of things that we start well. How many things have we finished? Oh, you know, don't look. I finished a meal. <laughs> does that count? I finished, uh, you know, uh, does that work? We aren't great at finishing. And so I think the encouragement, the admonition that I want to give for you and myself here is finish. Finish strong. Be one who doesn't just start, but you actually finish strong. You know, uh, it's really easy. Don't, don't be a Hezekiah. You guys know the story of Hezekiah. We're not going to go through that whole thing, but don't chirp like a bird. Don't speak against what the Lord would want for you. Be a man who finishes strong. And maybe, maybe this word is to those who are a little older in years. We'll say the mature crowd, the grayer haired crowd, or the less haired crowd, um, that you finish strong. Whether you're a grandpa, 
Whether you're one that you've done the work, you've put in the time with the kids, you put in the time uh, at work, and now you're sort of later on in years, and you have this ability, you have this time, you have this freedom. My, my hope, my encouragement for you men, finish strong. What does that look like for you? What does that look like for us? Man, as a grandpa, boy, be proactive in praying for your family, for your kids, for your grandkids. Every moment you get to interact with them, encourage them in the Lord. Remind them, talk to them, tell them the things that the Lord has done through you. What does that look like for, for a grandpa? Be quick to share those things with your children. Finish strong. What area of your life do you know is broken down that needs to be rebuilt, that needs to be encouraged, that you need to, to sort of work on to be able to finish strong. You know, when we, when we see this, 2 Timothy uh, 4.7 tells us, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. John 19.30, it says, so when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, what? It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. My hope, my desire is to finish well. And you know what? It can be hard when you're in the season of life where, you know, kids work, it's just busy. There's so much going on. It's like finishing. Boy, I just wanna, I just wanna start well. You know, when you're, when you're going through all these things, I, I don't wanna worry about finishing well. I just wanna start well, Lord. I don't even, you know, I wanna do what it is you've called me to do. But I think for us as men, as you think about this and you realize the Lord desires for you and myself to finish strong, what does it look like for you? I don't know exactly. I don't know what that might be. I don't know all of your situations. Does that mean finishing strong in repairing those things with my wife? The tension, the miscommunication, the hardships, the difficulty. Does finishing strong look like with my children, my family, things are in shambles, and praying through those things and working through those things, allowing the Lord to do that work? Those relationships, those connections that are broken, that are tattered, that the Lord would say, hey, I want you to finish strong in those areas. What is it that the Lord would remind you and encourage you and tell you, finish strong in that? I see here as the wall is half built, there's a temptation ah, to give up, to not continue on, to, to let the work sort of fizzle off. The enemy's attacking, it's too hard. The encouragement, the reminder for us, finish strong. I, my, uh, uh, my family, we grew up um, over in Cornelius area and we went to the small little church, Dilly Bible Church, um, and my, whenever I think about this idea of finishing strong, my mind snaps back to our, our childhood pastor, uh, <clears throat> Pastor Cloyce Drake. And he was one of those guys, you know, just had a jolly face. He, he always shined no matter where he was at. The, the interactions between he, him and his lovely wife, you could always see that there was just genuine love. You could see he just exuded the Lord. Those type of men are rare nowadays. It's rare to see that. And now he has since gone to be with the Lord. But Pastor Cloyce, he was one who finished strong. No matter what came his way, no matter the convictions, no matter the hardships, whatever it was that he endured, he finished strong. There was joy on his face. There was a lot of hardship, pain, suffering. But he was one who finished well. And my hope, my prayer for us men is let's be that. Let's desire, let's strive to be those men who don't just start We don't just start and continue down this path and it gets tiring, ah, and then we give up. Be men that finish. Be a finisher. As we go on, uh, not only a mind to work, but uh, the next thing I want to talk about is this idea of what it says here in verse 10. 
So read with me when it says, verse 10, chapter four, Nehemiah, then Judah said, the strength of the laborers is failing and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. And it goes on, you know, their adversaries, this is where they're surprise attacking. They say, they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to cease. Verse 12, so it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us 10 times, which is just an idiom for many, many, many times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. Take out the trash. Take out the trash. This fourth thing here is, you know what, for us as men, the, the building has continued, the work has happened, but what sort of stalemated this work? It says here, there's so much rubbish, there's so much trash, there's so much junk that we can't continue the work. We can't continue to build the wall. What's the, what's the, the key here, the reminder for us? Take out the trash. Take out the trash. I, um, I played a couple years of football over at Linfield College uh, back in the day, and we had, uh, we had this lineman coach, um, Doug Heyer was his name, and some of the older, uh, older classmen, the older linemen, if you will, they, they had made these shirts. And on the back of it was uh, when Coach Heyer was playing football, he was, you know, pretty beefy, uh, tough guy. When he was a line coach, he was pretty slender. But this beefy picture of him way back then carrying sort of this trash bag. And in quotes on top of it, it said, take out the trash. It said, take out the trash. And for, for us linemen, what did that mean? What, what, what was that title for us? Why was that something that was sort of tossed around. <clears throat> well, whenever we, as linemen, whenever we were in those positions and something happened and there was the temptation to make an excuse, oh, well, the scout defense didn't do this right, or that person didn't do this right, or the guy next to me, you know, he missed his assignment, or this person came through here, he would speak these words. He would say, take out the trash. And what it meant for us as linemen, stop making excuses. Stop making excuses. It doesn't do any good take out the trash and do your assignment. Do the job that you have in front of you. Where you're at, don't worry about those things. Take out the trash. Don't make excuses for the things that have happened. And I thought how fitting that is for us as Nehemiah is going through these things. The uh, Judah here basically says, there's so much rubbish, there's so much trash, there's so much junk, we can't continue the work. My encouragement for us is, men, take out the trash. Stop making excuses. When there's those things in our lives that are broken down that need to be rebuilt, the things that we need to work on, the things that we need to make sure are built back up, one of the first things that we have to do, remove the trash, remove the junk, remove the things that are hindering that work. Take out the trash. Don't make excuses for the things that you know the Lord has called you to do. I know that's easy to say. I know that's an easy thing to say, and we may even write that down, and we may be like, oh, yeah, I like that. Take out the trash. But men, please hear me on this. Do it. Let's do these things. What is it that the Lord's called you to do that you just keep making that excuse? Is it just praying with your wife? Oh, we're so tired, and it's hard, and it's difficult, and, you know, I don't want to do those. And I Take out the trash. Stop making excuses and do what the Lord's called you to do. Are you the young dad and it's hard to, to do family devos and walk through the word with our kids and, you know, it's busy and life happens and all the, take out the trash. Do what the Lord has called you to do. Are you continuing to be steeped in sin? If you're, if you're lusting after those things and this has been a hardship and a difficulty and we continue to make excuses why we can't sort of get, take out the trash, brothers. Don't make those excuses. 
Continue to do the work that the Lord has put in front of you. Allow him to work through those things. I, when I was thinking through that of my own mind, I'm like, man, I, what excuses do I make? And sometimes I think you and I, we don't even think, we don't even realize it. We have, we have sort of left these things, left this trash in our lives for so long that we've become used to it, right? Have you, uh, this is probably just me, you know, in your garage when you've got that pile of junk or that pile of trash or all those things, you just sort of stick it in that corner like, oh yeah, I'll get to that, I'll get to that, I'll get to that, oh, it won't all fit in the bin, I'll get to that. As time goes by, what happens? Well, that gets bigger and bigger, and at some point, it's actually a useful pile of trash. Well, now I can hold, that can put over here, you know, that can stick that over there, okay, yeah, we'll actually leave that there, yeah, that's great. Sometimes we just, we get comfortable with the junk, with the trash that's in our lives, and we, we see how it's piling up there, my encouragement is get rid of that. Get rid of that junk. Get rid of those things that are hindering us. Sometimes you and I need someone else to look in, to walk into our garage and, and say, whew, Kaipo, you kind of need to get rid of that. Have you not smelt that? Have you seen this junk over here? I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. I've gotten so used to it. Men, brothers, the reminder for us in this is take out the trash. Don't make excuses. Stop making excuses for what the Lord has called you to do and do it. The next thing I see here, just a couple more here, is uh, there in verse 13. I see that Nehemiah is arming the men and he's causing them to be fearless. Are the, the men of Judah fearless? Well, we just saw before then, no. But Nehemiah, how he leads, exemplifies this ability for them to be fearless. Let's read. It says, therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings. And I set the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. Verse 14. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles, to the leaders, and to the rest of the people. Uh, well, let's pause right there real quick. So we see that. What, is, what does Nehemiah do? I never see Nehemiah truly fearful. I never see him sort of giving in to that temptation to be anxious, to be afraid. Yet here, when the people he's leading is afraid, he steps in and begins to do this. What does he do? Well, first, he positions them in the most vulnerable spot. We saw that. The, 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 the spot that needs to be protected, the most vulnerable spot, he positions them there. What else did he do? He put them with their families. He says, I set the people according to their families. Now, as a father, as a dad, I'm not going to put my family in the most vulnerable spot. Like, my temptation is never to be in a spot that may cause harm or difficulty or hardship for my children, for my wife, why would I do that? Yet here I see this example in Nehemiah that he put them in the most vulnerable spot with their families. And did he just leave them there? Say, well, good luck. No, what did he do? He armed them. What does it say? Then he gave them swords, spears, and bows. I was thinking through this, and I was honestly convicted, men, of this because I, I never want my family or where I'm at, I don't want to be in those, those vulnerable spots. I like comfort. I like non-contention. I like nice, squishy, you know, easy. That's where I like to be. Yet Nehemiah put them in the hottest part, the most difficult part with their families, but also armed them. Boy, this was a stern reminder for me. I think for us as men, the Lord would desire for you and myself to be in those hard positions, to be in those difficult spots, to be in those places that are very hard. And not only by ourselves, it's not just us going through that, but he would call us to be with our families, to work through those difficulties, those hardships. And does he leave us there? No. He gives us his word. 
He gives us, he arms us, he prepares us to be able to do that. Why is this so important for us as men today? Why is this something that we really need to grasp and capture? I think our kids, our wives, our families need to see, hear me on this, need to see you and myself go through hardship. They need to see me as a dad going through difficulty, going through difficult things, hard things, at the heat of battle. They need to see that so that when my family looks and they see how's dad gonna handle that situation, how's he gonna deal with this or the hardship or, or the difficulty, when they see that, we realize God's the one getting the glory. He's the one that fights for us. Nehemiah, several times, verse four, he says, oh, our God. Verse uh, 15, it says that God brought their plot to nothing. Verse 19, as we'll read in a little bit, it's, he says, our God will fight for us. When you and I are in the hottest part of battle, we have our families with us, we're armed, our children, our families need to see that. And you and I need to lean on the Lord, realizing it's not our strength, it's not who we are that gets us through that. It's God through us. God has positioned us in these, in these areas, in this spot, to endure so that when our, when our kids grow up, they're not surprised when attacks come their way. If, if I live in my comfy, cushy life and never have any hardship, never have any difficulty, and I sort of remain there, my kids are never gonna be prepared for what's coming for them. They're never gonna be ready for the attacks of Satan. They're never gonna be ready for, for scorn, for shame, for scheming, for the surprise that comes. And so men, truly, this was convicting for me because I don't want to be in those spots. I don't want to be in difficult areas, in that spot that's hottest. I need to stay there. I need my family to be there. I need to lean on the Lord. I need to see how he will bring me through those things. And I love how Nehemiah, you know, this, this motivational speaker, what he says right after he puts these people there, what does he say? He says, verse, uh, let's see here, verse 14, last part, it says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. I picture, you know, his face painted blue, and he's riding around on a little black horse just saying, you know, fight for your freedom, you know. How, how can you not picture this? This very intense guy, Nehemiah, who's rallying these troops, saying, fight. Don't be afraid. Remember the Lord, great and awesome. I think, you know, as, as, as I was thinking through this, I was see, as I was seeing Nehemiah and how he motivated, how he encouraged, he always point back to the Lord. It wasn't him. It wasn't who he was as a leader. It was the Lord working through him. There was this purpose, this conviction that he had. Armed and fearless. Well, the last thing I want to leave with you guys here is uh, the last part of this, uh, this chapter is uh, these three implements, the sword, the trowel, and the trumpet. Verse 17 uh, listen as I read. It says, those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other they held a weapon. Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. The first thing we saw was the sword and the sword is a, a prime perfect picture of the word we see there in Ephesians um, to, be, to be armored. We see how the word defends, defends off the army defends off those spiritual, uh, the wickedness that comes against us. 
We see the trowel. The trowel is there to build up, to, to encourage, and that's the implement that we use to exhort and encourage one another. And then we saw the trumpet. What was the trumpet there for? Well, when there was the hottest part of battle, and, and they were spread wide, as you saw on that, that slide, they were spread all over. When there was hardship and difficulty and a part of the, the wall needed help, they blew the trumpet. They blew the trumpet, and there the team would come rallying towards them. Sword, the trowel, and the trumpet. I, I love how Nehemiah was this amazing example of servant leadership. This amazing guy who didn't just tell people what to do, he lived this out. We see that even as, as we end that chapter, how he was there up early, out late. He was a part of that work. It wasn't just the men he was telling to, to do these things. He was that servant leadership. He owned these things. Nehemiah was the embodiment of extreme ownership before it was the buzzword to say. He was the guy who lived that out, who really owned those things. And so I guess the last things I want to leave with you guys, you know, as, we, as we've taken a look at this, as we looked at the life of Nehemiah as they have built this wall, is, uh, again, be diligent in the work that the Lord's put in front of you. You know, see what the Lord has called you to and, and work in those things. Work in those things for his glory. But I think the last thing I, I sort of want to impress upon you is this idea of asking for help. Now, I say that knowing that that's hard for me, as I already mentioned, asking in general is difficult. But I think as men, that is hard for us. It's hard for us to ask for help. It's hard for us to blow the trumpet and say, hey, I need help. Why is that? Why is that for us as men? It's hard when there's difficulty, hardship, things that are going on in our lives. Why is it difficult for us to ask for help? Pride. Pride keeps us from asking for help. Pride keeps us from wanting to, to realize that we need someone to assist us. We need the Lord to help us. Men, don't be prideful about this. If, if you are going through a difficult time, if there is struggle, if you're in the hottest part of battle and you're failing and things aren't going the way that you need to and, and you're, you're sort of cowering under the attacks of the enemy, blow the trumpet. Blow the trumpet and allow the Lord to come alongside, allow brothers to encourage and remind you to focus on him. Blow that trumpet and, and remind yourself that the Lord is the one at work. You know, as, as I've gone through these things, as we've looked at all these points, I know it's a lot of information. I know there's a lot of things here. And if there's just one thing that sticks out, great, awesome. But my, my hope for us as men here today is the temptation is just to kind of go, oh yeah, okay, well, yeah, Nehemiah. Yeah, good stuff. Men, would you allow this to really hit you? Would you allow these things to, to mull on these things and allow the Lord through his word to encourage and remind you in these things? What have, what have we seen so far? Well, I've just gotten so much out of this. And I, I think this is probably more for me than anybody else, uh, which is great. That's fine. That's why I love getting to, to step into this. But we, we realize that we need to know the enemy's attacks. How does the enemy attack us? We also need to realize that the, the proper recourse towards that. Don't be aloof in those things, men. To set your mind to work towards the right thing, not the wrong thing. Being, being unified towards, towards him, but also finish Finish that work, men. Whatever the Lord has put in front of you, be one that finishes. Take out the trash. Men, stop making excuses. What has the Lord told you to do? Do it. Do those things. Faithfully as unto him, um, putting your mind, setting your mind on him, 
Take out the trash. Do those things. Be armed and fearless. See that example. Allow the Lord to use you in those difficult times to see how your family can be safeguarded and give glory and honor to him. Then also, lastly, just be ready to defend and build. Be diligent in those things. See how the Lord would work in our men here at Athey Creek. In Jesus' name, would you pray with me? Father, we are uh, so thankful for your word. We're so thankful for the opportunity to dive through these things and to see how this man, Nehemiah, uh, exemplified so many awesome qualities. So many things, but I'm so thankful, Lord, that we have a greater than Nehemiah. We have Jesus, who not only exemplified these things, but lived them out. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us through these things as men, Lord, that we would be ones who fall closer and closer in line with you, who do everything out of a love and a desire to please you, not for ourselves, not to be seen by people, but instead to glorify and honor you. Lord, our desire for the men here at Athey Creek is that not that you would grow bigger crowds and that more people and more men would come piling in, but rather, Lord, that you would grow bigger men, men who know you, men who walk with you, men who understand you, men who desire uh, to do this work for you. Father, for all the situations represented in this room, whether it's the single man, whether it's the, the married man, the family man, Lord, whoever is here today, I pray that you would speak to them. Lord, whatever it is that has uh, uh, sort of got them tripped up, Lord, would you desire for them to, to sound the trumpet, to ask for help, to come to you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And Lord, again, I pray that we would decrease. Lord, that we would decrease, but you and your word and your truth would increase, that you would be built up. We wanna glorify and honor you, that's our hope for us as men. That's our desire as a church is that you would be what we look to and what we desire to focus on. Lord, if there's anything today that I've said that's not of you, Lord, burn it away. I pray that it wouldn't re remain or stick or resonate, but anything that is of you would remain there. Would you help us to focus in on those things? So Lord, we, we just invite you in. I pray that today, because of this hour, hour and a half that these men have spent here this morning, I pray that even today, Lord, there would be great fruit from this time. Lord, I ask that as, as brothers are, are getting up and um, you know, going about their, their, their day, uh, Lord, that you just bless them, encourage them, remind them of these things. So Lord, we are, again, just so thankful. We pray your blessing, ask for your covering. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen.